Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about Paper Tiger, Law, Bureaucracy, and the Developmental State in Himalayan India. The book is published by Cambridge University Press and is written by Nainika Mato. Nainika is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Cambridge. Now, this book takes things such as a village terrorized by a man-eating tiger and a state struggling to implement possibly the largest social security program in the world and looks at them through the lens of bureaucracy, or even maybe rather paper. And such a detailed account of paper or bureaucracy reveals the unintended consequences of reforms, the problems with implementing new programs, and the inability of state officials to act when faced with crises. Rich, lively, and theoretically compelling, Paper Tiger pushes us to rethink how the state operates, not only in India, but also beyond. I had the pleasure of speaking with its author, Nainika, just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Nainika to the show, and uh, we're going to talk today about your book, which is about the working of the Indian state, especially in regards to the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act and also the Wildlife Protection Act. Now, most of your research took place in an office. So my first question, which, which might come to many people's mind, is why did you want to spend all your time in an office surrounded by paper so far away from where the real work is done? Um, hi, and thanks for that. Uh, thanks for having me here. It's very exciting. Um, yeah, so in terms of uh, why did I want to spend all my time in the office far away from what's considered the real work of development? Uh, it's a really interesting question because this is exactly what was posed to me by uh, all my interlocutors, all the bureaucrats I worked with, all the politicians I interviewed, or the policy analysts I spoke to, uh, would consistently point me to this uh, rural space or the village or some other space outside the office as the real site where development is made to happen. So, you know, even when I started my PhD fieldwork, uh, I would go and speak to these bureaucrats at very different levels of the state and they would say the same thing to me. They're like, there's nothing happening here. Whatever is happening is actually happening out there in the village, uh, especially with regard to the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. And you'll just be wasting your time working in offices. Now, I was interested in working in offices for uh, a couple of reasons. One of them actually goes back to my pre-PhD work, which is um, when I was working uh, in an environmental NGO in India. And at the time I was working in this environmental NGO, I did a lot of fieldwork in the Himalayas, in Uttarakhand and Himachal, on different kinds of projects. And something that would sort of recurrently come up at those points was um, that actually these policies, these projects, these programs are fantastic. It's just that there's something that goes wrong with the implementation part of it. And they would constantly refer to, you know, government offices and to bureaucrats and talk about how these people are unable uh, to implement these absolutely beautiful laws or policies. So my interest was always in trying to understand how the state functions. And I always thought that to understand how the state functions, I need to actually 
go into these spaces which look extremely dry which look like there's nothing happening over there um you know like a government office so uh, part of my interest came from that but part of my interest in studying uh, government offices uh, was also just came from some of the turns that were happening in the anthropology of the state uh, around the time i started my phd in 2006 2007 uh, which is where suddenly there was this new burst of literature uh, which was interested in looking at what's called the everyday state uh and it argued some of this literature was arguing that actually a site that hasn't been explored in enough detail is the site of government offices so um that's where my interest came in from it but i have to also say at this point that part of the reason that i actually ended up spending so much time in offices is uh, pure serendipity and purely about following your gut during field work so i got access to a particular district uh, chamoli district in uttarakhand and its government offices because of certain contacts and some like a series of sort of serendipitous events that then allowed me to actually work within the site and when i started working within the site of the government office uh, which is the district office in chamoli in the town called kupeshwar i thought that you know i'll just start out working here and i'll see how it goes for say 4 5 months and if i feel like i'm really getting nothing quote and quote and if it really is all just about paper uh then i'll move on to different sites but as i started to my field work i became absolutely um fascinated by what was happening in these spaces the kind of everyday activities the kind of talk the kind of chatter um and then i sort of it was it was literally 6 months into my field work where i decided that actually this is the site i want to work in this is you know i don't want to just do this for 6 months and then go to the places they were telling me to go to such as a village uh, or a work site but actually the site i'm really interested in exploring anthropologically and ethnographically is within an office mm-hmm. wonderful for that really that really sets up uh, the conversation that we're going to have for the rest of the podcast but before we do turn to the book in detail could you t- please tell us a little bit more about yourself i mean you mentioned that this is based on phd research and before working for an NGO but what was it that brought you to this research that eventually became Paper Tiger? Mm-hmm. So I uh, a bit about my academic background I guess uh, I did my undergraduate in politics and my masters in sociology at Delhi University and then I came and did another masters in development studies at Cambridge uh, but before I started my PhD so after I did my masters in development studies uh, at Cambridge I was I went and worked with an environmental NGO in India for a year and a half which I just referred to um and actually it was that work experience as well as my background training in uh politics sociology development studies as well as the same mix uh that got me really interested in coming and trying to understand uh the political but also trying to understand uh things like how the development of the state really functions um and that's what that's why I came back to Cambridge for my PhD in social anthropology but uh as you know you know the master in sociology in delhi is very similar to what we call sociology in india is very similar to what we call social anthropology in the united kingdom um and so that's why i sort of came back to do my phd with this interest in trying to understand the workings of the indian state but particularly the workings of its development and wing um i also got interested in uttarakhand and that's why uttarakhand became the site that i actually went to and the state i went to um partly because i had some experience of doing a different kind of work there sort of development work myself but also because uttarakhand was still a new state at that point and i was also interested in trying to understand what happens when you sort of carve out a new provincial state from a bigger state like uttar pradesh and then what happens within with this new formation in a way so one of the leading questions at the time that i started my phd 
was really what has been the effect of the creation of a new state on welfare activities in that region. Now, that question sort of has fallen slightly by the way, because then I became just more interested in the everyday functioning of the state uh, rather than then exploring what happens when it's a new state or an old state. So the question sort of shifted uh, as my field progressed. But that's what sort of got me to Uttarakhand. And that's what got me uh, into what has eventually become Paper Tiger. So after my PhD, I sat down and sort of have gone back many times and revised that work, um, you know, quite uh, a lot to then write up this book, um, which has become Paper Tiger. Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks. So you already mentioned um, the place where you were, the, the town of Ngopeshwa. And I guess to give readers an idea of, of what this places like for the rest of the conversation. Could you please tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so um, Gopeshwar is the is a town uh, which is the district headquarters uh, of a district called Chamoli. So it works as the administrative headquarter of Chamoli district. Chamoli is a district that is located in the Garhwal region of Uttarakhand and it shares a long border with Tibet. Um, and uh, as I sort of previously mentioned, I got introduced into Chamoli district through a series of sort of serendipitous events uh, whereby uh, the district uh, development wing in particular uh, welcomed me in. This sort of allowed me to come in and work as a participant observer within uh, a cell that was called the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act cell. But more widely, they gave me access to the block offices. Uh, they gave me access to the district office itself, where I had this, I mean, now I look back at it and I realize how incredible it was, this sort of absolute free uh, run of the place. So I would go and sort of keep office hours and be in that, uh, within that district office for as long as I wanted. I was there almost for a year. Um, Gopeshwar is a really lovely and interesting little town. It's a small mountain town and was actually created just so that it could serve as the administrative headquarter for Chamoli, when Chamoli itself was carved out as a separate district in the early 60s after the Sino-Indian War. Um, now, I talk a bit about Gopeshwar because the way in which uh, Gopeshwar and more generally this part of the Himalaya, so Chamoli district, but also just this region of the upper Himalaya in Uttarakhand are described is always as this remote space. Um, so right from the beginning and right till the end, and even now when I talk about Gopeshwar, people will be like, oh, but it's so remote. Um, and that's the word they use. They use it in the English language, even if they're not English speakers, but this is what seems to sort of define the space. Um, so while I was living then, because I lived there for so long, I sort of became interested in trying to understand what it means to live in a remote space. What does remoteness feel like? What does it taste like? Why does everyone always think of Kopeshwar as remote? So part of what Paper Tiger is also trying to do is it's trying to understand how the state functions on an everyday basis. But it's also trying to give you a flavor of what the state really looks like and what it feels like for inhabitants of, quote-unquote, remote regions of India. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, thanks. Now, let's, like you mentioned already, that uh, one of the focuses is this uh, National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, uh, NAREGRA is how it is. It's, yeah, Narega, yeah. Narega, okay. Narega, and so yeah. let's talk about this in a little bit more detail. So this is something which you know, is conceived of in Delhi. How does it make its way to somewhere like Gopeshwar and what happens to it on its way? Mm-hmm. Right. So so Narega, I was again very interested in this because so I started my PhD in 2005 and Narega was sort of born in 2005, so to say. It was passed by unanimous consent uh, in the Indian parliament. So it's actually just celebrating at the moment, it's celebrating its 10 year anniversary. Um, 
in 2005, 2006, when I was reading about Narega and seeing the forms of activism around it, I was really struck by how it uh, appeared at that point to seem like this extremely radical legislation. You know, these are the kind of words that I use with it, revolutionary, progressive, radical, uh, because of the fact that it constitutionally enshrines the right to work, um, albeit for 100 days in a year, albeit at minimum wages, and for unskilled laborers in rural India, but it seems like this uh, this huge step towards enshrining the right to work for you know we're talking about a large population of the Indian popul- of India, seventy three percent of the entire population, so about seven hundred thirty to seven hundred forty million people. Uh, so I got interested in Narega at that point, but then again, thinking as an anthropologist, especially once I was positioned in Chamoli within these offices, the question that arose and the question that Paper Tiger explores and sort of tries to describe is what happens when you have this extremely sophisticated legislation that has been authored by activists and bureaucrats and politicians uh, in the English language in New Delhi. How does this? then get translated into something that feels tangible in the Indian Himalaya, in a remote region of the Indian Himalaya. So to give an example, how does how is it that you see this legislation that's sort of making its way slowly into the Himalaya? How do you see its tangible effects in the villages in terms of wages paid to laborers or in terms of physical construction, such as a road or a water tank? Um, and as an anthropologist, you know, this became a big methodological question for me in terms of really trying to understand how law gets translated into practice. Uh, and that's how, like, thinking about this and looking at it ethnographically from within the site of government offices in Uttarakhand made me realize that to understand this translation process, one has to look at uh, paper and files, right? So as we were discussing right at the outset uh, of this discussion, you know, the question that everyone said, the point that everyone said to me and, was, well, why are you here in this office? There's nothing here but files and documents and, you know, you're just going to be overwhelmed by this paper and you'll find nothing beyond this. And a central argument of Paper Tiger really is is that it is in in following this paperwork that actually translates Narega, this radical progressive legislation, into something that we can see as a real developmental uh, impact or a developmental effort of the Indian state in villages in the Indian Himalaya, we can really do that by looking at uh, particular forms of paper, looking at files, looking at documents, looking at ID cards, uh, understanding what's happening at meetings, what's happening at awareness generation camps, um, you know, sort of, sort of following this everyday life of law as it gets translated into practice through very material things like paper, but also beyond that, by looking at things like public spectacles, speeches, meetings and performances of that form. <laughs> Wonderful. So now let's um, move on to the discussion in chapter three. There's a really interesting paradox there. And it's like you, you, you talk about how this, how Narigris has a focus on transparency and how that even though you would have thought that this would have made its implementation easier, it wasn't quite how it worked out in the end, was it? Yeah. So again, uh, you know, one of the very fascinating things about Narega is the fact that it really enshrines uh, these ideals of transparency and accountability within itself. So a big opposition to Narega at the time it was being debated in the Indian parliament was that something like Narega with the vast budget it would command would actually just open up space for greater, what's euphemistically called leakages, right? Or what, uh, which is a euphemism for corruption in India. 
Um, but the answer that the advocates of Narega really had for it was that, well, actually, this is such a transparency-inducing legislation that it will make the functioning of the Indian state transparent and that will disallow these leakages out. Um, now, what I argue in Paper Tiger is that, uh, yes, there is a very strong ethic of transparency that runs through this legislation. Uh, and there is also some extremely canny designing within the program itself, uh, which is aiming to ensure that the functioning of the state does become, quote unquote, transparent. My argument uh, around the transparency thing is that it had a very interesting impact on the implementation of Narega. So the first thing I ask is I said, okay, yes, we have this ideal of transparency. But then how do you actually make the Indian state's operations transparent? Like, what is like what does it mean to say that actually now we see the state transparently, we see it functioning, uh, you know, we can it's visible. Um, and I argue in uh, Paper Tiger that actually this visibility and this transparency is can only ever be achieved by firstly exacerbating the kind of paperwork that exists. So it is only through uh, the production of more documents, the production of more figures, uh, the production of images, uh, the circulation of particular kinds of documents that you can, the Indian, the local Indian state can say, actually, we made ourselves, we made our functioning transparent. So one of the arguments of this work is that actually what Narega did with its uh, ideal of transparency was that it really greatly increased the pressure to do, to produce particular kinds of paper on the lower level bureaucracy. I won't go into the details of the precise types of documents that it involves, because that you can see in the legislation or in the book itself. Um, but one of the arguments that really, uh, the book is making is that transparency leads to greater paperwork. It leads to almost an explosion in paperwork. Now, related to that um, is the fact that then what happened with this explosion of paperwork is that a lot of the lower level bureaucrats sort of felt extremely beleaguered. They felt that they couldn't actually cope with this level of work that was being demanded of them in terms of maintaining these registers, in terms of, you know, filling out particular forms, in terms of giving particular documents back. But the second related point of this, uh, which is again linked directly to the transparency ideal within Narega, is that there was one extremely interesting measure that's there in the, in the statute. And that is that uh, Narega enjoins that every worker, every registered household rather, has a new ID, uh, which is called the job card. And the job card is this ID that they all keep with themselves. And in the job card, they have a photograph of the whole household and they have details of wages paid and days worked. And this is something that the worker herself keeps with her. Now, I argue in this book that actually what happened with the entrance of the job card into the functioning of, uh, into the implementation of Narega was that it made uh, what's called the traditional arrangements for the functioning of public works schemes in northern India, it made it very difficult to do that. In this previous uh, scheme, such as say with Sampoon, Grameen, Roskar Yojana, the Jawahar Roskar Yojana. So again, these are like employment schemes that uh, also talk about um, creation of public works in villages uh, in India. Uh, they didn't have a lot of the paperwork that Narega enjoins, but they particularly didn't have something like the job card. Uh, and in the book, I sort of show why the job card created uh, this very bizarre situation at the local level whereby um, the contractors who used to traditionally do the work of overseeing uh, these public works became extremely careful uh, to not actually work on Narega. 
they suddenly well firstly they thought there's too much paperwork but they were made very uneasy by the presence of the job card because the job card in a way does um allow the laborer to come out and claim that you know i work for 20 days but i was only paid for 10 days or i actually never worked on this but my name is in the master rolls uh so it sort of creates so it's this what i call a transparent making document of a very high form um and that the presence of the job card within narega uh really dissuaded contractors and local big men and even local uh, actors from picking up narega as a particular kind of a scheme that they would want to work on and because of the fact that uh this narega exists i mean this job card existed and all these other sort of transparent making documents were existing um what happened was that at the time that i was there in uttarakhand and actually even subsequently when i've gone back i could see that nobody was willing to work on it and by nobody i mean contractors i mean panchayat leaders like the pradhans etc i mean even the village level development workers actually even just the block level development workers they didn't want to really get involved with the rega so the interesting so the paradox that i'm sort of talking about in chapter 3 about the material production transparency is that you know we all think that like the indian state needs to make itself transparent right this is what everyone says all the time it's about transparency and accountability and of course we all agree with that but uh, what i'm trying to show ethnographically here is that something that seems very ideal and that seems that uh, it is really required by an extremely opaque and you know this gargantuan organization like the indian state it has this paradoxical results it has this ironic results which are that people don't want to actually then go and do the labor that's required to make this legislation into a reality in the field and so the argument that i sort of put forward there is that actually the transparency in narega was creating a crisis of what everyone calls unimplementability so you know people would constantly say to me they're like oh my god narega it's unimplementable it's unimplementable and i show in this book that this this unimplementability comes directly from the transparency and accountability clauses that are there in the statute so is absolutely fascinating really this this discussion i really enjoyed reading it and um but so far we talked a lot about paper so let's let's now spell out the different types of paper and letters that are circulating around the indian state as well as the various characteristics of these states so you know you've got like letters of introduction to photocopy letters to letters what you call a, a pure fantasy so can can you give the you give the readers some really rich descriptions of these different papers in the book so could you please tell us how these different people how these different types of papers are capable of acting in quite different ways mm-hmm. yeah so you know this uh, this chapter the letter of the state um uh, really looks at it sort of is trying to come to terms with something that i saw in abundance to put at mildly within the state spaces and this is this particular document of a letter so you know i talk about how on a everyday basis you'd have like hundreds of letters coming in and in and out of the cell not just in the narega cell but in any sort of you know i worked in a variety of government offices you will see that a lot of the work of the government happens through letters whereby one officer writes to another office you know uh, the forest department is writing to the animal husbandry department or the district magistrate is writing to the subdivisional magistrate and a lot of the communication uh, happens through these letters that uh, different officials and designations and offices write to each other now what i was really struggling with was trying to understand how do i actually explain two things one is how do i explain the different kinds of letters which are there just to myself like not just even to the reader but even to myself to try to make sense of this 
world, which is steeped in letters. Uh, and the second thing I was trying to do in this chapter is try to show to the reader that actually these are not just dry bureaucratic documents, even though they might seem like that on first uh, glance, that there's just, you know, a very formulaic quality to it, extremely dry and, you know, like the say Sarkari in that negative way that, oh, it's so dry with no affect, no um, no feeling behind it, no emotion behind it, no substance beyond a formulaic uh, discussion. And what I try to do in this chapter is to show that actually these are deeply affective documents, uh, not just in the way in which they're written and circulated and read within everyday life in government offices, but also in the kind of work they're doing. So to sort of explain what is the work that letters are doing, I sort of classified them as letters of introduction, clarification, translation, procedure, or as them functioning as something that's called a protective shield, uh, whereby they protect officials. I talk about fantasy. I talk about how they are forgotten. Uh, and I use these sort of verb forms to describe these letters to show the kind of work that they're doing. So, for instance, I'll just give one example again here. Uh, something that would often be said to me is that letters protect you. Uh, and officials would say, they're like, oh, but this is to protect me. This is to protect him. And I would ask, but what does it mean that a letter is protecting someone? And they would say, well, you know, it works as a protective shield because suppose there's an audit, suppose there's an inquiry. If I show a letter that I have written saying, well, I asked A to do whatever, or I informed A about something, this then works to shield me from uh, any allegation that I haven't done my work properly. Let me talk about something like the forgotten letter. This is a letter where I talk about how you have all these hundreds of letters that come into these offices, but nothing happens with them. They're sort of filed away. They're forgotten. They're often deliberately forgotten. They're suppressed. You know, there's that uh, phrase in Hindi which says dabana, which is like this, they're sat upon it. They're sitting upon these particular files or particular letters. Um, or sometimes they just forget about them because they just forget about them. They just seem so bizarre or they you can't do anything about it, but they become forgotten. Sometimes they're deliberately trashed. Sometimes they're deliberately burned. Sometimes they're accidentally lost. So I talk about how all the, this, this work which is happening around letters, whether it's deliberate or not, and most of it is deliberate, is what actually allows us to understand this everyday life of the state. But it also allows us to understand how the state is assembled together as a particular kind of an entity through this form of communication, through this way in which, um, you know, it builds up this idea that actually this is something called the state. It is an entity that's working in tandem. It is an entity that communicates with sort of different uh, people. It, 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 it communicates across departments and it discusses things on the basis of which any form of action is possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Another way that you, you talk about the way something that enables action is, is through the, is through meetings which take place because you weren't only just doing paperwork and sitting in offices, you're also going to a lot of meetings and, and you argue that there's something which you call the, the state or the Sakari effect. And this is what keeps the state's bureaucracy running. So could you please tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about these meetings and how this Sakari effect works? Right. Um, so, you know, so on the one hand, you have like all this like reams and reams of paper and letters and documents and forms and IDs, etc. within the everyday life of the state. The other thing that you encounter a lot in doing an ethnography or bureaucracy in India is that you see that there are a lot of meetings 
right? So these could be very different kinds of meetings. It can be an audit meeting. It can be uh, awareness generation meeting. It can be a meeting with your superiors. It could be a meeting to train your juniors. I mean, there is a whole variety of meetings. So in the everyday life uh, of uh, these government offices, I would go along to various meetings. Now, again, just very much like the letters I encountered, one of the challenges I uh, really faced in writing this book and thinking this material through is, well, two things. One is, what are these meetings doing, right? Like, what is the point of it? Because, again, if you talk to a lot of bureaucrats or you talk to people who are not bureaucrats, they'll say, oh, it's just routine. Oh, it's so boring. It's so dull. It doesn't actually do anything, right? Um, and so, I mean, I was trying to sort of understand so my argument in this chapter is really that I don't agree that meetings aren't doing anything. So they might not be doing what they claim to do. So for instance, one of the meetings I talk about, uh, the types of meetings I talk about, which is when you have um, these district level development meetings, whereby every developmental wing of the district will come together from sort of the top to the bottom level. And they will run through something like the, called the monthly progress report. And look at the progress that's been happening around Narega, for instance. You know, have they met particular objectives? What statistics have they achieved? Have they met particular targets? How many people have been paid? How many have not been paid? What are the grievances around it, etc. Um, and so I would go for these meetings and, you know, yes, there was a very repetitive form to it. They seemed, again, very much like they're following a particular script. Uh, it felt very much like actually, you know, this is just empty talk whereby they're coming and saying, yes, we will be, we will work transparently. Yes, we will coordinate things with one another, but is it actually achieving anything? And I, and this is a question I kept asking myself. I said, what are these meetings doing? Are they really achieving what they claim to be achieving? Or is it just that as bureaucrats themselves would say, it's just routine and it doesn't mean anything beyond that. And actually my argument about meetings is that it's not really possible for us to assess whether they achieve that auditing or accountability requirements that the statute or the law dictates that they should, right? Which is that they're somehow auditing themselves and producing this very coherent and correct and actually empirically right narratives about their own performance. Um, I don't think that's what I can get from the data around meetings. But I do think that what meetings were achieving was something else, something very subtly different. And this is that they were creating this impression of something called Sarkar, the state or government, as it's known in India, that there is something called Sarkar and that Sarkar comes together and forms itself into a coherent entity on these days, in these spaces, through these particular kinds of performances. So, you know, I talk about how, for instance, low, uh, lowest, like young lower level bureaucrats or young bureaucrats are trained to behave in a Sarkari fashion. Now, as you know, in India, to say something is Sarkari normally is quite a pejorative. It has pejorative connotations, right? It means something that's dull or dry or corrupt or something problematic about it. But actually, the idea of being Sarkari within these state spaces becomes an aspirational quality. It becomes something that you see these young, especially these new young recruits to the state. This is something they want to be. They want to inhabit Sarkar. They want to inhabit Sarkariness more accurately. And one of the space... And you know, and this means you dress in the appropriate way, you turn up at the right place, you know how to speak, you know when to speak, you know where to sit, you know when to stand up, you know how to address someone, you know when to bow to someone, when not to bow to them, you know what tone to adopt. It's about a particular habitus of the state that these new recruits come to inhabit. And I, one of my arguments is that it really, this, this becoming Sarkari, which is an extremely sort of aspirational quality for these young, uh, the wall men, young men, 
is something that you already see very acutely happening within meetings. So I talk about something called Sarkari affect. And I say that, you know, so one of my arguments in this book is that we need to stop thinking of bureaucracies as these disenchanted, barbarian iron cages. Rather, we need to think about them as spaces that are alive with particular forms of affect. Uh, and my argument when I talk about something like Sarkari affect, it's a way in which I'm trying to draw attention to that 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 side, that ethnographic reality of government offices as these spaces that are humming over with all sorts of things which are happening within them. And uh, one of my arguments about Sarkari affect, like what I argue it's really doing uh, is that it's actually allowing us to see, it's allowing these members of Sarkar to feel like they belong to something that is larger and above themselves, you know, which is something called the Indian state. And this affect, it comes across really, uh, really vividly in meetings. So, you know, I do talk about uh, in the previous chapters as well, say, especially the chapter on letters, as well as the one on transparency, where I'm talking about particular documents, especially the job card. I, I am trying to suggest to the reader that these are not just these dry bureaucratic documents, but these are actually extremely active uh, and powerful little things, you know, and they are charged with affect. But in the chapter on meetings, and this really, like, what I'm trying to put across there is that this is the moment where you can see in these performances, in the bodily habitus of these people, in the speech, in the way they're orchestrated, these are the points that you already see Sarkari affect come alive quite vibrantly. And uh, I mean, just a last point that, you know, so my use of Sakari affect is also meant to distance this work from some of the some of the overwhelming narratives around bureaucracy and state, which tend to foreground violence. Right. So they say violence of different forms, whether it's structural violence or Althusian notions of violence, etc. That this is what keeps the state together. This is what underpins the state. Now, my argue, what I'm trying to do here is that what happens when you ethnographically study the state? My argument is that it's not. I didn't find the literature on violence that interesting as much as I found um, things like this, like this whole idea of Sarkar and Sarkari affect. Uh, so the personification of Sarkar and senior bureaucrats, but the sense, this whole affective charge that you have in particular spaces, my argument is that this is what keeps um, members of the state together. It, may, it allows them to feel that they belong to something called the Indian state and it allows them to function within it without, um, you know, this sort of this idea of violence hanging over them, if that makes sense. So I found, uh, so in short, what Sarkari Affect is doing is that it also allows us to look at the state and bureaucracy, uh, not just as violent spaces, but actually as a different kind of a space. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And um, so the, the, the book is called Paper Tiger. So I think it's time we now met a, a, a big cat and, and it's in my... <laughs> personal favorite chapter, which is called The Reign of the Terror of the Big Cat. And my, and my question is a, a really a really simple one, which is why can't the state stop a big cat from eating humans? Um, yeah, so I think the answer is quite simple. It's because of the Wildlife Protection Act of 1972 and a clause <laughs> within that. I want a better answer than that, come on. <laughs> Which basically disallows. So, okay, so the real, the answer that's sort of stretched out at uh, detail in this book is that, yes, it's about a conservationist legislation and the way in which, uh, and not just the legislation, but also the this widespread conservationist um, feelings that you have globally, you know, uh, as well as within India in this way, sort of uh, 
the kind of activism you see in sort of middle class and urban India around the protection of big cats. Uh, what this has done is that it's put a lot of pressure on local bureaucrats, especially in like, you know, distant sort of remote regions of India to not just go and kill any leopard or tiger that they see. Right. I mean, they can't. They legally can't because they have to wait for something called a hunting permit. And you only get the hunting permit once you have proven beyond uh, any kind of doubt or beyond debate that the leopard in question, and it has to be that specific leopard, is actually dangerous to human life. So I show in Paper Tiger that actually to prove that, to prove that this particular leopard is a man-eater, that it is dangerous to human life, uh, takes a lot of persuasion. And of course, this persuasion, as with everything else in the Indian state, happens through the production and circulation of particular kinds of documents. So you have these petitions coming in from frightened citizens, you have newspaper clippings, you have these horrific pictures, you have these telegrams and faxes going across where you see the district administration, especially the forest department and the district magistrate, are really trying to persuade the superiors sitting in the state capital of Dehradun that actually, you know, what we have in our midst is an active man-eater. It is a cat that is dangerous to human life. It is aberrant. It's deviant. It's not a normal cat. Um, and so please, can we be given the permission to hunt it down? So again, I show, you know, with that particular man-eater, the man-eater of Gopeshwar, as he came to be called, the... Um, with in his case, it took like a long time, like almost two months before you could win the hunting permit. And when I use the word win, that verb, uh, this is the verb that was sort of used by all the bureaucrats. It'd be like, look, we won this. This is a victory for us. We've been able to convince our superiors that actually this particular leopard is dangerous to human life. And so now, you know, we can actually start with the process, commence with the process of finding hunters who will kill the leopard. So, you know, it takes you ages to win the hunting permit. Once you won the hunting permit, it takes a long time to find hunters who will come up to this remote part of India, you know, all the way up to Gopeshwar, like miles away from everywhere else. Once the hunters come up, it's not easy to kill. It's not easy to find and hunt a leopard. So the whole process takes forever. In the book, I talk about this um, through uh, by outlining five different kinds of time and how these social times were operating at the same time point uh, and there was sort of a conflict between these different orientations to time uh, and this is why it led to this like extreme what was discussed as this extreme form of waiting but what this chapter so partly this chapter is about big cats and conservationism and what the ironic side effects of conservationist regimes might be but partly this chapter is also trying to rethink uh, normative ideas of waiting so you know again something that's really uh, assumed about the Indian state is that either it doesn't care or it's lazy and inept, and it makes its citizens wait a lot. And in this particular case, this particular case of the big cat, I show that the waiting emerged not because the state doesn't care, not because it's inefficient or corrupt, but I show that this, this long period of waiting, which seemed absolutely ridiculous while you were living through it, waiting for the reign of terror of the big cat to end, uh, actually emerged due to very varying orientations towards time and the clash the clashing of these different kinds of social times coming together. So it was this conflict in time that actually led to waiting. So part of the the thrust of this chapter is to make us rethink uh, the standardized and sort of stereotypical notions about waiting that are associated with the Indian state. Wonderful, thank you. Now, as is very often is the case with these podcasts, uh, we've rushed through what's a really rich and, and, and detailed book in, in, in quite a fast fashion and all of my questions reflected my reading of the book. So I was wondering, is, is there anything that you'd like to highlight for the listeners that I've not touched? 
come with my question. Um, well, I think your questions are fabulous and it's a really good reading of the book. I think the only thing that, you know, often when people ask me about this book uh, and what I want them to take away from it, and I think the main thing I really want anyone who ever, you know, has the time or energy or motivation to read Paper Tiger is that I want them to go away from this book uh, thinking about the Indian state and bureaucracy in a slightly different way. I want them to think of, I want them to see that these are spaces in which there are lives, there are human beings, there are things, uh, and that should not all be seen through uh, cynical or disenchanted lenses. But actually, we want to think about these sites in a slightly different way, as alive, as inhabited, as charged with emotion and affect, and uh, and and comprising different kinds of people who you know, who are human beings like the rest of us, you know. So I think the the point of this book at some level is that we really need, like, is to think about what is it that ethnography or bureaucracy can teach us? What is it that ethnography in general, you know, these long periods of immersion in a particular space or these long uh, periods of working as participant observers, what can that actually show us about the Indian state that is different from perceived notions about the state as corrupt, inefficient, violent, uh, incapable. You know, I, I so I think even if you don't buy the argument of Paper Tiger, even if you don't think of this through this ethnographic lens, I think the whole point of this book is to try to make us think slightly differently about the Indian state uh, and the developmental state. And not through, you know, the dichotomies of virtue or vice, not through... Is it good? Is it bad? Is it efficient? Is it inefficient? But just try to understand this as an entity with a very particular history and a very particular politics of functioning, a very particular ontology of being, so to say, uh, and just try to get a glimpse of that. So that's it. So I think my my ambition with this book is to just give you a glimpse of this everyday state as it functions in practice, in reality. Uh, and then maybe that might convince some readers uh, to think about it differently, and maybe it won't. Uh, but I just want to open up that little ethnographic glimpse into that world. Well, I can say for for this reader, for me, I, I it really made me rethink a lot of things about the state. It's, it's one of those really wonderful ethnographies, which is which is both very highly detailed but speaks to really big questions at the same time. So I mean, it really, this yeah, it really is a. And it was really nice to read as well. And this is it, like, because you're thinking, oh, you're talking about law, you're talking about bureaucracy, but it flows beautifully. So so I'd like to yeah, recommend it to everyone listening to this podcast. But um, let's move on. Enough about this book. This book is out. What are you working on now? Oh, no, well, thanks, Ian. <laughs> uh, well, actually, um, I'm happy you like the last chapter the most because that is uh, my next book, which I'm sort of all, I'm halfway through with and I hope to finish it by the end of the summer. Uh, it's called Crooked Cats. And it's a book that actually, it's almost like a sequel to Paper Tiger in a funny way, because it picks up from the last chapter. Um, and it sort of is an elaboration of human big cat conflict in India. So not just in the Himalaya, but it's trying to understand human big cat conflict in India, um, historically, anthropologically, and again, through sort of a law and society lens. Um, and so it, it, and it was really the motivation for that book really came from living under the reign of terror of the big cat in Gopeshwar for those, you know, almost those three months, but also sort of then reading up more on this and seeing how uh, human big cat conflict is a really huge problem in the Indian Himalaya. Um, 
and and again that's almost and i've been sort of working on this book for uh, almost the last 8 9 years since since my time since those uh, 18 months i spent in uttarakhand um and uh, yeah so i hope to finish it by the end of this year for sure okay wonderful we'll keep keep our eyes out for that then well there's nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you for coming on the podcast i really enjoyed the book and i really enjoyed speaking with you about it today so thanks a lot thank you ian a pleasure to be here Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Paper Tiger by Nainika Mathur. I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you're going to check out the book itself. Downloading it next time. Ta-ra.